This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a... A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Are you drinking brown liquid tonight, Cody? Have you been good? You haven't started indulging before the podcast started. No, I haven't actually. I haven't. And I don't have any with me right now, actually. I kind of just brain farted. Came upstairs to the podcast studio without any. I may, uh, mm. I may randomly disappear for a few minutes here once we get things rolling and come back with some brown liquid. I was saying that your your beard does look very, very manly. It's it's grown out very. Um, what's Grizzly Adams like? So uh, it's it's a uh, nearly forty seven years in the making. Like literally, this this would be the first time that I've ever looked at my beard and thought. Man, that kind of looks like a man's beard. <laughs> oh man! Well, we certainly have somebody unique on the uh, the roundup this week, don't we? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think you saw the the same um, the same thing that I saw when he sent through his um, his academic CV, right? Yeah, absolutely. Very, it, unique is a great word. Impressive is another word. 
Impressive is another word. What was? Let me uh, let's let's just throw the you know gasoline on this fire. What was the word that stood out to you, Cody, and 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 the 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 academic CV or the papers that he sent? The word that stood out to me. I think you're. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe, come on, Cody. Stop being shy. No, no. I mean that like psychology. The there's a there's one word that I that I can't pronounce it is it ichthyology laboratory yeah that's yeah, ichthyology never heard of it never I have no idea what ichthyology is it's the study of icky things um the fact that <laughs> the fact oh my god you the oh, fact that the word gosh, is on there right like i mean we got we we spent a long time in, in this organization looking up to a guy from Mississippi State, and now we have Rutgers here. So I mean, the Mississippi State stuff's just right out the window, right? Yep, yep, yep. Um, you know, when he sent through his CV, obviously impressive, right? How many publications, Stephen? Over a hundred? Yeah, just about a hundred. Nice, I like it. And he sent a couple of um, he sent a couple of. Uh, just perusing type articles, and I'm going to. I want the audience to hear some of these titles: "Contagious Yawning," the role of self-awareness and mental state attribution. That was one. The one that uh, I know that uh, that Cody, you you quite enjoyed, and you read uh, you, when you went to bed that night was: "Does semen have antidepressant properties?" <laughs> right. That this was the no, one that. These are studies. I. I'm not shitting you. Contagious yawning is maybe one of the most interesting studied topics I've ever seen in my life, right? Like, there's a lot of but things. But it's so true, right? You watch a hot girl yawn, look around her, how many guys are yawning at the same time? Right. That's interesting. There's so many things that you, that you PhD, doctorate people study, and I'm like, why the shit do we care? Contagious yawning? I don't know... That there's anything bar barring truly life saving things. I don't know if there's anything I care more about than a study on contagious <laughs> yawning. I mean, that's some shit that's interesting to me. And uh, you know, I don't know that we should completely derail this roundup. Um, but I may just have Steve back on and be like, look, I know it's weird. Blood Origins isn't really a contagious yawning nonprofit, but I want to dive deep on this deal sometime. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I will, I will just note quickly cause I know it's completely off topic, but I had zero interest in contagious yawning when I was a, a graduate student, but my PhD supervisor would not stop talking about it. And so while they were reading my dissertation, which was on schizophrenia, um, I just designed a few experiments and those studies on contagious yawning, um, they had me, I had media coverage all over the globe for that study. And since it's generated more paper, I mean, I, you know, I hope we can curse on here. I mean, I just did it for shits and giggles and I became sort of an international expert on yawning. And, you know, one of the things that was really interesting to me is that people, uh, we thought we knew why people yawned just normally. And that, that the reality of that has just come to light. That it's not about oxygen. It's not about tiredness. It's actually about the temperature of our brain. And um, one of the neat things about uh, contagious yawning is that 
and, and it's funny because um, I was just talking about with my girlfriend about this last night and I yawned and my one-year-old yawned and she just stood there like nothing. And she was reminded of the fact that psychopaths, people who, who are, who score high on psych, like being psychopathic do not show contagious yawning. And uh, so we chuckled about that because, you know, she's, she's cold. Cody, our roundup just elevated, my yeah, man. No, we have to stop. Elevate. We have to stop, or we're going to talk about elevate. this for an hour. Or an hour. Because, yeah. okay, I got one question. So when you're yawning, <laughs> and it, if it's about the temperature of the brain, is the yawn like an attempt to cool the brain down quickly by bringing air in? Is that what it is? So it does two things. So um, one is you, if your brain's hot, you won't yawn in a hot environment. But in a room temperature or cool environment, the the draft of the air coming in quickly and then all of the blood vessels that innervate all of these areas around our carotids will actually channel slightly cooled, um, convected air into our frontal lobe. It would be like an evaporative effect, except it's reversed. The cool air coming in cools the blood just slightly, and that gets into the brain. And one of my colleagues, uh, Andrew Gallup, did some really cool studies looking and did did, did thermal imaging of animals and humans and showed that when they spontaneously yawn, uh, their, their brain, their basically their brains got colder. There you go, Cody. I have no idea if he's completely full of crap, but that's one of the most interesting things that I've ever <laughs> like, okay. Move. Like I have a million questions. We, we got to go to something else or I'm going to derail this shit. And Robbie's going to be, you want to move on to the, you want to move on to the semen have antidepressant yep, properties. Yep, oh, God. Time there. Um, I gotta know. It's gotta be quick, right, Steve? Because this, I'll fuck the whole thing up, and Robbie will be pissed. How did that become a study? Okay, so I'll give you the cliff notes. So, in uh, 1973-74, a guy by the name of psychiatrist by the name of Richard Nay published a study in a journal called Medical Hypotheses, um, and that journal's fun. It's, uh, I mean, somebody just recently published a study showing that fecal transplants can cure COVID, and so stuff like that. But so in 1973-74, he published a study, said he had a really depressed woman and um, uh, psychopharmacological therapy, couch therapy, all that didn't work. And he went back to the drawing board and gave her uh, a real detailed interview. And uh, one of the things she indicated was that about the time her depression really got severe, uh, she stopped having intercourse with her at the time with her husband. And he, he then went on a deep dive into the chemistry of semen. And he basically showed that there's everything from estrogen to testosterone to um, serotonin to these chemicals called prostaglandins that all are well known in biochemistry to have physiological effects. So fast forward to whenever that paper was published, 2001 or two or something. And um, my colleagues and I, we, we were thinking about how, how we could follow up on this. Fortunately, I had a, I had a mentor who was the kind of guy who I mean, you just throw anything out there, and he's like, "Yeah, let's go." If it's if it's a if it's a question that can be made into an experiment, let's ask it, right? And you asked, you said earlier, like, you know, a lot of people probably don't care about yawning because it has it doesn't cure cancer, it doesn't solve any world hunger, it doesn't stop wars. But in in my my opinion of science, uh, knowing is always better than not knowing, and ignorance is the furthest thing from bliss. Period. I tell my students that all the time, like. Like just being it, that's not a good point to be. You may you may never want to know why we yawn or that semen has antidepressant properties, but who knows what it could bring in the future or 
you know, just, and then this is the thing I love about animals too. You know, my, my, my sons, they love to watch National Geographic and, you know, we're not learning anything by watching the bears on, on National Geographic or watching the elephants and, but it's cool. It's just, just, we just know it's awesome. And so anyway, so we fast forwarded, we're in a uh, academic university situation. Um, obviously we couldn't recruit subjects to come to a laboratory. I mean, we could easily recruit guys to come in and do that study, no pun intended, but girls were a little reticent to just be inseminated by random males for the purposes of a research study. So we, we, we suggested through our, our laboratory meetings that maybe what we need to do is develop what we considered a dose response to exposure to semen. And we asked people anonymous survey using anonymous surveys. We asked them how frequently these women um, uh, asked their partner, forced their partner to use barrier contraceptive condoms. And some of the women said all of the time, uh, some of the women said none of the time. And then there were some in between. And then we had a subset of women who, who didn't have sex. And uh, when we, when we looked at the exposure to semen, as a function of, you know, simply using barrier, you know, self-report, all kinds of limitations with that. But uh, my colleague, Rebecca Birch, has now done this on thousands of, of undergraduate students across across the states and in a few other cultures. Um, uh, the, the women who always used condoms were, they were having sex and they were as depressed on this, this little survey. And the survey is pretty standard. If you were to go to the therapist, they would ask you some of these questions. It was not diagnostic, but if you score high, you would, you know, you go to the next step of diagnosis. It's called the Beck Depression Inventory. And um, girls who were using condoms all the time, uh, young women, I should say, I'm going to get killed on the pronoun world, but uh, were as depressed as women who didn't have sex. And when we analyzed the data and looked at things like, well, maybe girls who are not using condoms are, are in more committed relationships. Like they're telling their fella, like, we're good, like, take it off. Or, or maybe they're in longer relationships or, you know, um, uh, maybe it's more exclusive. And, and none of those things accounted for any of the variance. The only thing that accounted for a variance in the depression scores was our little self-report, uh, um, uh, uh, self dose-response, barrier contraceptive use of condoms. And uh, the only thing that obliterated that effect was the use of a hormonal contraceptive like the oral birth control pill, which is the, the most commonly uh, used form of oral contra uh, of hormonal contraceptive. You know, some women have a little thing in their arm or they get the shot, um, but the, the pill is the most commonly used. And that, that obliterates so many effects in, in young women and, and, and just sets them up for all kinds of potential issues. Um, but it did, did ruin that effect as well. It turns out all those women were slightly more depressed independent of whether they were using condoms, having sex, no sex, whatever. Oh, and the other thing we, we accounted for was orgasms. You might say, well, maybe it feels better if you don't use a, con a condom. And it turned out that it didn't matter. Uh, they were all reporting the same number of orgasms, um, whether they were using condoms or not. Holy smokes, Cody. Our numbers, our, our roundup numbers are going to go like through the and roof. And then we're going to get about uh, eight complaints too, just which is perfect which is literally right where we want to be of why is this guy on we're gonna need the segue from hell into you know why why we have steve here today well i think one of the, i would like to say there was one more paper that actually uh, points to your facial hair it's uh, and the other title of the, the the last title of the paper was optimal waist to hip ratios in women activate neural reward centers in men 
And the paper starts out by saying variations in men's facial and body morphology are related to women's ratings of attractiveness, Cody. That is correct. Yeah. And beards are, beards are a secondary uh, sexual characteristic indicator. And you find that most women, um, uh, at least sort of 21st century women, the way you think about this is right. So um, the, the beard indicates maturity and beard growth is correlated highly with testosterone, which is associated with fertility. In fact, there's a really classic study published in, um, I believe it was the top tier journal nature. There's two journals in, in um, science that are kind of like, you know, the gold standard science and nature. And uh, this author who went by anonymous actually measured his clippings. Uh, he was, he was secluded on, on a, on a research retreat and uh, with his significant other, and he measured his uh, beard clippings with an electric razor on nights, on every night, but categorized certain ones after having sex the night before and was able to show that on nights, on mornings after he had had sex, his beard was heavier and thicker than on mornings after he did not have sex. And that's one of those indirect, weird relationships between testosterone and secondary sexual characteristics. But in the, the sort of basic evolutionary sense, the difference between a boy and a man in the face is, is facial hair. Um, in the rest of the body, it might be musculature, wide shoulders, um, you know, differences in body fat proportion, but that, that indicates um, sexual maturity. And women tend to find that um, that and interestingly enough, indicators of, of age in both the hair and the beard. So like a little bit of salt, a little bit of salt with your pepper there um, seems to be more attractive because age is uh, an indicator of attractiveness in men. I, so know, Steve, I know. I was looking at my wish. I'm like, God, I feel like such an egotistical idiot here saying this. Those are just data. You know, I'm not, you know. Just data, exactly. Can't help exactly. If I the data, fellas, you know. So, Stephen, you are clearly um, someone who has studied a lot of these sort of interactions of people. Have you, have you heard? And here's the segue, Cody. PhD segue here. Um, have you heard of whether hunting? In someone, someone who hunts, being a, you know, almost a genetic trait, a tribal characteristic, that if someone hunts both male and a female counterpart, is, the, is there an attractiveness change there? So I thought about this a lot, actually, since starting hunting. I, I think I told you guys, I'm what, you know, I guess the mediator crew, whoever they are, calls them, adult onset hunter, started three years ago. And, um... I don't know. I don't know if it's hunting that would necessarily make you more attractive, but I think one of the things that hunting is related to psychologically is an underlying personality or or maybe uh, an evolutionary trait that is more present in men than in women, which I would refer to generally as ambition and an ambitious males are are so so the way we do these studies is so we take a picture of, of an undergraduate or, or or a fella and we use the same picture so it's, so it's physical attractiveness is kept constant but then we do like a little like a little dating website blurb and you know in the one we could make him you know uh, I live in my mom's basement and I play video games all the time and in the other we might you know that's just we don't use that one but but in the other one we could say well you know I'm, I'm out there trying to better myself and move up the, the corporate chain or trying to provide for myself and make a better life for myself. And almost without fail, 
women prefer the ambitious male. And I, I think one of the things when we talk about the evolution of this um, hunter-gatherer idea is that um, hunt, hunting people think that that the the urge to hunt has gone away. I, I have colleagues. I, I work at a college, right? And so they, they think I'm some, you know, I, I ride my T-Rex to school or something. Like I'm some dinosaur. And um, why do I hunt? And, you know, you can go to the grocery store and you can get whatever you need at the grocery store. But I think, I think really humans, particularly men, uh, males, we hunt for things. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to exclude. I know there's some wonderful female hunters. I would, I think if you were to survey the world, there's probably more men who hunt. And if you survey them, the world of, of hunters and, and somehow assess their, their intuitiveness of hunting, I would argue that more men are, are like sitting at home, looking at maps and checking trail cams than, than women. And I think that's not just because there's more men hunting. I think there's something about the hunt. I think what happened in modernity is we evolved. We hunt different things. So I might hunt for a better degree. I better hunt for more money. I may hunt for better or more mates or, or, or girls or whatever I'm into. And I might hunt for a nicer car, a nicer pair of shoes or, or whatever. I think that, that ambition and that chase, because I, I see it in my, my personal experience with hunting, and I've heard you talk about this on the podcast a couple of times, Robbie, with the guests. And, and one of the questions you often ask about is uh, the kill, right? And, and, and a lot of non I – don't, I don't interact with a lot of anti-hunters, anti-bear hunters maybe. I really like the bear hunt. But, but mostly it's non-hunters. And a lot of the people ask about, you know, is that what it's all about? Why, why are you going in the woods, you know, 20 or 30 times a season – and you're only coming back with two or, or four or six, like, what, what are you doing out there? You know? And, and I, for me, the, the hunt is not the thrill of the hunt is not when, when the, uh, I like the bow hunt. So when the arrow pierces the animal's skin or, or when the bullet knocks down the animal, and that's almost like the resolution of the hunt for me, that the mm -hmm. thrill is, you know, pretty much over at that point, you know, it's, for me, it's the outsmarting, of the world. And I think, you know, I think some of your guests have said this in another podcast, you know, there, there is a, there's a, a DNA part of our brain. There's, there's this old idea in biology and shut me up at any time guys. Cause I don't know. Academics can go. Okay. 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 So, so there's an old idea in, in biology, evolutionary biology, uh, known generally as what's called the mismatch theory or the mismatch hypothesis. This idea that like, technology has evolved so quickly that we, we can't keep up. And, and a lot of people blame technology. Oh, kids are obsessed with video games and cell phones and gadgets. But, but really we've been, we've been hunting for that kind of excitement since the dawn of human intellect. I mean, the guy who developed the first stone tool, like, you know, he shared that with everybody. He was excited and it, and it spread and that mimetic information, that, that cultural information is really what's what's interesting about hunting to me, and so so a lot. Of my neighbors are like my neighbor next door, a good friend of mine. He always says, "Man, boy, you you sure to go in the woods a lot." And I was like, "Yeah, well, I like it there." And he goes, "But, but you know, you don't always come back with something." I said, "Well, I said let me take you hunting, you know." And um, 
let, let me see what your experience is. Now, it turns out I put him on a 350-pound bear that he couldn't kill, but he was he was enthused, and he's already, like, renewed his license for next year. And I said, that was mm-hmm. exhilarating. That bear was, like, 15 yards from us. And, you know, you're, you're, you're novice with the gun and all that. That's why that bear is not in the back of the truck. But it was exciting. We walked, I don't know, eight miles, 1,400 feet of elevation, no cell phone signal. There was nothing. And so, so I think there is a, um, an evolutionary basis for hunters. And, and I will say, and I'll, I'll echo the words of somebody I really respect. I've, I've learned to, to, about this fellow through hunting. His name is Shane Mahoney. He's a great conservationist. You know, and, and he said something to the effect of the reason people are so passionate and, and energetic about major sports uh, in, in America, that might be football. I'm a hockey player. In other places, it's probably soccer or you know football, real football. But the reason we watch that is because in did you hear that, Cody? The real, real football, <laughs> yeah, real football. We use a foot and a ball. Go. I know, I know. I'm we're talking about going off the rails, but but I think those those guys who who are professional athletes in in the hunter gathering, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, those would have been the guys and girls to some extent that would have gone out and been able to track down an antelope or a wildebeest or a buffalo. And they're just in a different arena right now, right? They're in a different social arena. And so I I do think that there's, there's something uh, instinctually maybe more attractive about the uh, um, ambitious hunter. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also think there's something psychologically attractive about the the role of the provider i mean you know you're de- you demonstrate to yourself when you go into the woods and you make a kill um when i go to the woods i i i'm weird i'm all my hunting buddies thing i wear i keep spreadsheets of all this crap and everything but when i go in the woods i always make sure i'm hungry so i eat dinner i don't eat a late night snack the night before i have a hunt in the morning i don't eat because I feel like it heightens my senses. It's like a fasted state. And when you come home with something, I mean, that meal means something in a way that is, is you know, my neighbors love to eat the wild game. When we have our little wine nights at my house or the neighbor's house, we gather around the fire. You know, we, we, we buy various wines or whiskeys or whatever. And I'll usually bring a wild game plate since I've started hunting. And they all marvel at how good it is because not because I'm a good chef, but I think because I handle the meat appropriately, it doesn't taste gamey. And to them, it's a good piece of meat. It, it, uh, it tastes nice. doesn't taste like what they thought. They're surprised that they like bear. Everybody's surprised they like bear. And I was surprised I like bear. And um, for me, it's more than that. Like when I, when I take a bite of that, that, that bear shank or, or that deer tenderloin, you know, as the hunter, you, you're, you're, I don't know. You're, you're thinking about like, what direction was the wind blowing when I, when I knocked this animal down, you know, um, how far did I have to track it? Did it suffer? All of that stuff is in, in neurology. We call that sort of, it's part of the brain called the orbital frontal cortex, which integrates all of this, this stuff associated with taste. So if you go out to a meal and you have like the smell, the taste, the sight, the texture, I think hunting and bringing your own meal back adds a psychological sense of, you know, this is here because I did something. I hiked mm-hmm. four miles and dragged this thing out of the sure. woods and 
gutted it. And hey, that's a long answer. That's but amazing. I think that's I think that's what's happening when 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 hunters do well by the people that find them attractive or, or and of course the anti right. we're all killers, right? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, look, we're uh, 25 minutes into this podcast. We haven't even introduced you, Stephen. I think people have, <laughs> people uh, people get have gotten a very good sense of who you are, though, for sure. So, give us a a two minute, one minute, like this is who I am. Sure, sure. So, um, I guess officially, I'm Dr. Stephen Pladek. I hold a PhD in uh, neuroscience with a slant towards evolutionary sciences. Um, I'm currently at a small teaching college here in. Um, sort of northern Georgia, not mountains, but Gwinnett County, Georgia. And uh, before that, I did some stuff in various places, including England. Um, and I studied the, uh, the evolution of the mind. And um, mate selection is part of that. And, and anything that goes, really anything in psychology goes under the evolution of the mind. I like it. I like it. Cody, uh, quick admin. Yeah. Well, you just want to forget admin. Uh, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to and keep going, but we shouldn't. Um, admin things really quickly. Don't forget about the Supporters Club. Incredible opportunity for you there to come on. Um, we 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 are as the Supporters Club grows and becomes our main source of funding. It really allows us to not um, take on large scale corporate sponsors. You hear some you hear some big names in support of Blood Origins. Um, it kind of blows their mind sometimes how little money we ask for from them because we do not want them to be um, – nobody's going to be able to tell us what to do ever. That's kind of the way that sums it up. Um, and we, we we do take money um, from in our corporate conservation club and podcast sponsors, but they're all very small amounts of money. Our bulk of our funding comes from that supporters club. So if, we like what, if you like what we're doing uh, – for the price of a cup of coffee, you can go to our website, click on Supporters Club, join it there, and help us keep doing what we're doing um, as far as our video production, our podcast here, and our projects. Corporate Conservation Club, if you own a company and you want to put your money where your mouth is, um, our Corporate Conservation Club is growing with some really cool names um, from all over the world, which is, which is fun as well. Um, go to Amazon, go to smile.amazon.com, put blood origins in. That's just taking Amazon's money and giving it to us. It's none of your own. And if you want to interact with this, holy crap, if you have listened to the last 25 minutes and you don't have something to text us right now, um, then you need to, uh, drink more whiskey while you're listening to our podcast. But, uh, you can test text us at 620-860-4804. We'll try and uh, answer your questions. We got a couple of uh, we got a couple of avid followers that drilled us uh, last week because we didn't do a roundup because of some some uh, just scheduling complaints. So thanks to those guys for keeping tabs on us. Um, or you can email us at info at bloodorigins.com. Send your comments. That the, the only downfall of the podcast environment is. We've got to get you to take those extra steps to kind of interact with us. Nowhere really um, are we tracking or following um, comments on podcast spots because you can't really comment about an exact episode. So send us a text. Mm-hmm. What did I forget? Uh, we got a text from Dave. Oh, yeah, the text from Dave. That's right. Let me pull that up so I don't mess it up. Um, so Dave wanted to talk about trophy hunting. Yeah. 
this may be a good piece of piece of neurological uh, psychology that we can work on on the, the the terminology of trophy hunting. Yeah, Dave's a phenomenal guy. Um, I love the way his interactions, and I love how he always has a good thought about something. I don't want to read the whole text, but he talked about it in episode 162 where we he wondered if trophy hunting isn't the right word or if it needs to be rebranded. He proposed an option of challenge hunter because you are putting additional restrictions on yourself that are outside what is legal and sustainable. If you put size, sex, age, etc. restrictions on yourself because you enjoy the additional challenge. Um, I like the approach but I'm just old enough and dug into my ways that I don't like the idea of changing a word because someone else has got their panties in a bunch about the word. Um, and, le- and I, I, unless the word is, you know, derogatory towards another, like, right. Like I'm, I'm all in favor of not using those words or changing those words. Um, but this is not derogatory towards anyone. This is a description we use of ourselves, I don't wear a shirt that says I'm a trophy hunter, um, but there are times this year's Colorado mule deer hunt, I wanted to shoot an old, mature, hopefully large antlered mule deer. Um, so I get Dave's point. I know that the word trophy hunting causes us uh, PR problems. Um, Dave's an intelligent guy who sent us some great things. I disagree with him this time. I think we... I think the mission with the word trophy hunting that we have is to show people why the Boone and Crockett Club was founded and the concept of why shooting older male animals became prevalent. Um, And that as Dr. Steve just gave an example, we spend a lot of time in the woods, you know, 30, 40 days in the field, I think you said for two, four, six animals, right? And and it's because of that selective hunting process um, that we go out and select what is a trophy to us. And uh, that's my thoughts on it. I think this is probably a battle I'm going to lose. At some point, the hunting world is going to stop saying the word trophy and cower down to the pressure from it, but it's not what I think is the best solution. As you as you would expect, Cody, I uh, I tend to disagree with you, uh, because the the term trophy hunting is the biggest thorn in our side. It's the thing that just gets we get raked over the coals all the time. If we started using a different term, it would still be used. There's no doubt about it. But challenge hunter, I don't like the idea of challenge hunter from Dave. I like the idea of selective hunting or conservation hunting because the fact that the Boone and Crockett score of a trophy represents a, a value tied to the conservation of that species and the habitat in which it exists. That's what I like. I like those terms. But we're never going to get rid of trophy hunting because the anti-hunting establishment is always going to use it against us. But do you think what we're doing that is being labeled trophy hunting is wrong? The action. I do not think – no, the action is the then same. why – Why do we we change it? Because, because words matter. Because what you, what, because words matter. And because there's a connotation of the trophy, the action is exactly the same. The world record bushbuck got killed in Uganda, 22 and a half inches. Looks like a bloody Sitatunga. 
right? This one on the wall behind me, you see that right there? That's a monster bushbuck. It's 15 and three quarters. Okay? It looks like a Sitatunga. And the only reason that thing grew to 22 and a half inches is because of the conservation of that habitat and letting that animal mature. And we've just called that a trophy instead of just calling it conservation hunting. The action's the same. But words matter. Words matter, Stephen? No, I agree. Um, you know, words do matter, right? I mean, you can pour black paint all over the zebra, but it's still a zebra. And so if you start changing the terminology, what you do is, in my opinion, I think you find yourself just running, right? And then, so we change it to challenge hunting. And then somebody says, well, now challenge hunting is the new trophy hunting. And so now we change it to selective hunting. And and so I think the education process that folks like yourself and um, people at the Meat Eater and, and other podcasts have, have really started to do is almost every time trophy hunting is mentioned, they have sort of a footnote of what a trophy is, what a, what, you know, and, and I grew up in a non I grew up in an anti-hunting family, if I'm being quite honest. My mom is, is to this day, still petrified of weapons for, for reasons that are probably beyond the scope of this podcast. And she said to me when I started bear hunting, well, well, what a waste. You're just killing that. And she lives in New Jersey of all places. Um, oh, my. What, yeah, yeah. What a waste that you're just going just gonna to hang that, 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 that hide on your wall. And when I told her that Lauren, that's that's my uh, my girlfriend and her mother had bear, and they and they both basically told me, you know, don't even waste your time hunting deer anymore because get get all the bear you can because it's so good. My mom was flabbergasted and started talking to a friend and a friend, and eventually there was a bear hunter in there and echoed my sentiments. And she got updated real quick. I mean, she's old, right? And the idea of, she thought I was just out chasing, you know, something to hang on the wall. I also think that the idea of trophy is is uh, something that each of us hold near and dear to our own psychology of hunting. I mean, when I first started hunting, uh, a deer was a trophy. I mean, I you know I, I didn't even know I would ever see a deer in the woods. To my eleven year old, a big bushy squirrel is a trophy, and you know I think that's the value in keeping the terminology the same. And I'm not arguing with your your buddy who texted here. I think. That is one approach to to change the word. But I mean, if you, I don't want to get political, but I mean, if you likened it to politics and instead of calling it the Republican Party, you called it the, you know, American, well, everybody knows what you're talking about, right? You're just putting a clown face on it. And so I think the antis would take that almost as a sign of defeat and let's, let's get after them harder. They're so scared of our movement that they had to change their terminology. And I don't, I don't think it would catch on outside of th- this little, you know, niche that sort of wants to call it something else to make people happy. Steve, I had really high hopes for you, but we're going to have to say goodbye to this to you since you just agreed with Cody. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's, but it, it it's a complicated. It's not a cut and dry thing where I see the motivation for the idea of changing it, but. I really look at it as I know that the things I'm doing hunting wise are not only good for me, but they're good for the species. They're good for the ecosystem. They're good for every party involved, except those outside observing it who don't like it. 
and I don't, I, I, I see the, the changing of any part of it because I'm not saying that we don't ever find things that we need to change. Right. I mean, you know, we change bag limits on ducks on a yearly three year basis. And those are the right things to do. We change some of the things that we do, but not for reasons of outside pressure. Um, but you know, a, it's cowering to what they're doing and B the mission should be not to change the name to, to, to educate people who think that name is a bad thing. Right. And I mean, a, 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 a great example of this in my mind is <laughs> my, my stepson and I are in the truck the other day and one of his friends jumps in and his, his, his friend is Hispanic and he started talking about his family. And I said, are you Mexican? And my stepson freaked out. It's like, dad, you can't call him a Mexican. I'm like, what do you mean? That's, there's nothing, you know, exp- and, and instead of, he thought I needed to call him something else. I just need to explain to him that that's in no way, shape or form a bad word. He's a, he's a fourth grader that thought I was doing a racist thing. He, he misunderstood. And I explained to him, there's, that's a, it, it, there's, that's not a bad word in any way, shape or form. And the kid said yes. And then made fun. And we both made fun of, of, of my stepson for a little bit for not, you know, in a, in a, in a fun way to me, it's, it's not a word that needs changed. It's not, it's a thing that we do and the way that we quote unquote trophy hunt and and, in North America and multiple parts of the world has led to flourishing species and ecosystems. Um, And that, that's my goal is to educate people on what our style and brand of hunting um also the other weird thing is i don't know anyone that's ever referred to themselves as a trophy hunter like like what do you do for fun oh i'm a trophy hunter it's it's not a thing right um anyway that's my side on it thanks for the input dave somebody else send us another text we'll talk about it next week also please everyone remember that dr steve just agreed with me and not robbie <laughs> yeah Trophy's a weird term because people don't want you to go trophy hunting, but then they, you know, society's giving out trophies left and right. And, you know, if we, if we said all hunting was a trophy, it's a participation trophy, well, you know, maybe nobody could argue with us. Well, that's, that's a very good point that you make, Steve, because I believe that it probably is. Yeah. I think a very small, very small minority of hunters are truly, truly not trophy hunters. And I say that because we've thought through this a little bit. We have a lot of situations in Blood Origins where someone, we post something, elephant hunter or elephant hunting or, you know, one of these big things. And they're like, oh, I'm a hunter, but I hate elephant hunting. Or I'm a hunter, but I hate trophy hunting. Mm. And I said, okay, you hate trophy hunting. So when you go hunting, the very first animal that steps out, you kill it, right? Regardless of what it is. Small, big, young, old, male, female, it doesn't matter. You kill it. And 99% of the answer back is no. That's right. And then you say, well, okay, well, why didn't you kill it? 
oh, it was too small. Wow. Hmm, you just put a value on it. The value is the trophy. That is what trophy hunting is. You've just put a cultural value on an animal based on some sort of preference that you have decided that you wanted to imbue on that animal. I want a large doe. I want a mature doe. I want an older animal. I don't want an animal with a cub or, or a, a, not a cub, but a fawn. Yeah. So, that, that, you know, there's no buts about it. I am a hunter, but no buts about it because I think you're right. I think when someone says, and I might even use that. Thank you, Stephen. Then when someone says I'm not a trophy hunter, I'm going to say, I, I think you are. You yeah. just don't know that you are. I think that's the case, really. Amazing. Amazing. Well, look, we're 42 minutes in. Do we even want to get to an article? Yeah, let's hit an article. Let's, let's hit an article. All right, Stephen, you are the guest. So you get to choose. You get to choose what article you want to hit this week. Oh, geez. Um, I don't have my email up right now. Um, obviously, the easy, you know, softball for me would be the evolutionary one. And we talked about that a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, hunting is the kind of thing, you know, and, and when I read that article, so, so I have, I have a little gaggle guys that we talk to, we have a little text message. We're all, we, we call ourselves a bear crew and we text, we text all, all year about bear hunting and a couple of us stay in a cabin. And, um, one of the, one of the hot topics that, that we talk about is obviously places closing bear hunting. And, um, uh, we're all sort of active in that. One of my buddies has written a couple articles for uh, the Bear Hunting Magazine uh, that, that Clay Newcomb used to to, to run. And, yep, fantastic uh, magazine. Actually, a couple of guys wrote articles in there. Shout out to that magazine. They're a supporter. They're one of our uh, supportive program. Awesome. They do some good stuff, and that whole guard the gate message really really rings true with us because um, – well, one, the article doesn't have a lot of stuff on, on Southern Appalachian mountain hunting, which is what we do. And um, that that idea that bears or predators, it seems, having listened to you guys and read some of those articles, predators seem to be the low-hanging fruit. And and I, I grapple with that psychologically because in in a, in a world where there's, you know, where we're, we're real humans living in the wild, it seems like predators would be the, the things we'd be defending against. But But I guess... Deer hunting uh, or ungulate hunting has such a long sort of tradition in history. I mean, some states give kids off the first day of hunting season, right? I mean, it's just that's just it's a, it's a national holiday. Um, and predator hunting I, has been around for as far as my research can tell for as long as deer hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of gone under the radar, but I guess you know, bears big and cozy and cuddly, and uh, mountain lion is, <laughs> I mean. I wouldn't want to cuddle with them, but they're, they're cute and, uh, stuffed animals are made, you know, there's nobody has a, has a, a beanie baby of a deer. They have a beanie baby of like a lion or, or a bear. Stephen, and- why do you think the psychology, um, of humans is so intimately tied to predators? Have you, have you read the book, David Guaman's monster of God? I have not. No, dude, you need to read it read because it? it's all about how humans are intrinsically linked to alpha predators. Well, I think I think alpha predators are linked to one another, and I think humans are in that realm. I mean, once we invented tools and technology, uh, I mean, you know, we—I tell my students in my evolutionary science courses, you know, as critters, we suck. We we can't really climb trees. We have no claws. We can't. We have no fur, no shell. Can't change colors. Poor senses. 
the only thing we have, our best evolutionary adaptation is between our ears. And that allowed us to develop projectiles and that sort of thing. And so, you know, regardless of whether it's a big jaw to bite down and crush your skull or, you know, a 30 odd six coming out of it, you know, 3000 feet per second, that evolutionary and cultural adaptation puts us at the top of the chain. And I think like anything in nature or culture, things at the top are competing and they have an affinity and a natural respect for one another. Um, and so I, I think that's part of it. I'm not, it's hard for me to think about, I'll tell you on the, on the campus, when, when my friends find out I've taken up hunting or even my students, and then they find out that I, I bear hunt, it, it's almost like I've dropped a rung in their, in their respect level. And I, I don't get it because I, just, I don't under, I don't, it's hard for me to comprehend. And I, I've, I've thought about it a lot and I just, I, I, people won't even talk about bear hunting. Don't you think, don't you think in the, just in the lay person, in the non hunter, I think it's, I think it has a whole bunch to do with, they can process eating a deer or an elk. And for some reason there's a, there's a disconnect in eating a bear. And it, 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 like, I think it's a disconnection of eating for, for the most part with bears, which, and the reason I think that was totally personal, right? Like all I had ever heard was how horrible and greasy and unedible bear meat was. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to go on a bear hunt and, and, and get a bear and then eat the bear. And I was wrong. Right now, I mean, it's it, it's a different batch of meat, right? You it, you don't want to prepare it like you would a, a a fillet from the store, but not only edible, incredibly good to eat. I, I I to me, I think with the layperson, to some extent, that's the disconnect on predator hunting. Um, I'm not going to sit here and make a great big argument for uh, for eating coyotes. I do have for the first time in my life a mountain lion backstrap in my freezer right now. Um, that I've been told is incredibly good by by uh, some people that I'm not sure if I trust, but we'll find out. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, I think to some extent, I've watched people who were horrified that I shot a bear, eat some of the bear, and go, oh, you, you did, you know, I, I think there's a, a whole lot of people that think if we eat it, it's okay, and they don't think we eat bear. And, and they, you know, and I think there's a, I'm not, I'm not laying it out very well. It's fairly intimidating to be the college dropout on this podcast right now, but the, None of that I, I think, uh, I, I think that is a huge part of it. The, like, I, I think we need to feed a bunch of people, some good bear, and we would win over that, some of that middle group, um, who for some reason just has it in their head that we shoot them and, and, and cape them for a rug and take their head and leave everything else laying out in the woods. You know, I think that's part of the disconnect. And I think, I think Clay Newcomb is doing some, you know, the guy's obsessed with bear grease um, to the extent that it's what his podcast is named. And it's phenomenal. I mean, I, you know, after you get done listening to every episode of blood origins, you should listen to bear grease. It's an incredible podcast. Um, and, and, uh, you know, just an articulate, well-spoken guy that talks about how valuable every part of the bear is. And, and that's a cool thing that I think will help us win that middle over. I concur. And I think 
uh, Clay is really a smart guy. I, I think uh, he, he obviously missed his calling as a researcher. You know, one of the things that dawned on me as we were talking about this, uh, the only types of animals that, aside from, from canids, uh, dogs, that we really domesticated um, through evolutionary history, about 10 or ten to 20,000 years, and that's sort of a moving target in terms of evolutionary theory, would be ungulates. I mean, I mean cattle. Pigs, iron ungulates, or porcine, but whatever. But but you know, throughout human history, there's there's, to my knowledge, there's never been a group that has domesticated bears or or lions or or tigers as a as a form of livestock. And if we go back to that idea of sort of the mismatch hypothesis, it it may be the fact that ten twenty. I mean, I mean, agriculture had a huge effect on the evolutionary change of our brain. A very rapid. Uh, progression. In fact, uh, biologists have argued that humans are evolving at, at as more rapid rate than almost any other uh, mammal, um, on par with like insects because of our food stuffs and our pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. We're constantly being bombarded with with foreign agents. But it could be the fact that it's hard for the the quote unquote layperson to to understand hunting predators because the revolutionary time. We didn't hunt them for me. We, we, you know, eventually we we harnessed agriculture and we had these 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 cattle or what have you. We only we only got rid of predators to save the things that we wanted to eat. That's legit. Yep, for sure, for sure. Well, we're getting close to the top of the hour. Um, we have a number of different articles that will go out in an email this week. We've started doing a Blood Origins email, a Roundup email, that'll go out after this podcast tomorrow. Uh, if you are not an email subscriber to Blood Origins, just go on our website. The box will pop up, or you can go to the bottom and you can uh, fill in your email address. And what you're going to get is you're going to get all of these articles that we didn't discuss today, <laughs> that we typically would have discussed today. Um but we've got some great articles in there. Uh, rhino poaching in Kruger National Park is absolutely rampant right now. There's an article about that. Uh, we threw in an, an old article from August of 2021 about how Namibian rural communities are choosing trophy hunting, again, that name, over cattle. Uh, we have two conflicting pig articles, one about uh, where they are prohibiting the wild pig to be hunted. And then while we finish off with this, craziness given that it's coming out of california <laughs> that california is actually promoting the easing up of being able to hunt pigs however you want holy smokes you know i, I read that article and i i so, sorry cody I, I i read that article and i thought to myself well that makes me think that that's the wrong strategy if California is doing it. And I, I hate to hate to be like that, but it just seems like they're, they're sort of backwards with respect to a lot of these things. It's amazing to me that they're admitting that hunting is a viable option for anything, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. like they tried to get rid of it to manage their bears. They've completely gotten rid of it to manage their, their mountain lions um, it's hard for me to believe that they're headed towards, you know, and they're going to argue back with you that it's a feral species, it's an invasive species, and, and some of those things are true, um, but maybe it's a it's a the faintest glimmer of hope out of California that they're admitting, okay, 
hunting these things might be a good option to help us manage them. Real quick, on the pig thing, in the article where was it? It's in Canada, right? That they're that they're right. outlawing hunting of pigs. I've heard this argument a couple of times, and I guess I would like both of yours take on it. Um, both of your takes on it. Um, they're making the statement in there that killing them off increases the numbers, and I've 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 heard that about coyotes. You know, I've heard that argument thrown out as coyotes too. That if you if you hunt and and kill a coyote, it brings in three coyotes. I made I made the numbers up, but there's there's that. Is there? I I I I don't understand that i don't understand is is there a scientific argument there with that not from a from, not from a bio not from a biology perspective coyotes have an you know it is true they have to, they have evolved an evolutionary strategy to persecution essentially in that more of them that get taken out females start producing more uh, more litters and and larger litter sizes and they're not being persecuted. The litters are smaller. That's that's proof. That's 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 true. Pigs, pigs do not operate like coyotes. Pigs sexually mature very early. They can drop three to four litters every year, and nothing is stopping them dropping three to four litters every year. So twenty pigs become two hundred pigs, become two thousand pigs, become twenty thousand pigs, become two hundred thousand pigs. So what these guys are doing is saying, we want two hundred thousand pigs. That's what's going to happen. It's it's a monstrous monstrous mistake okay yeah that, that's been my understanding too i i've actually tried to track down uh some primary research some good primary research a lot of a lot of i love georgia dnr guys this is not a slide on them but a lot of a lot of dnr research is more for reporting than it is academic research and i've tried to track down the literature to suggest that 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 demonstrably shows that when you kill one coyote three or four, however many, just repopulate that. And and I, I do understand the carrying capacity idea where if you kill one or the, the, the you reduce them in large quantities, they adjust their litter size. That's well known across the animal kingdom. Um, but yeah, as far as pigs, I have not seen anything like that. And, and I, I can just give you an anecdote on a little, little property I hunt in North Georgia is 205 acres or something like that. They haven't had a pig. I'm, I'm first year on there. They haven't had a pig on there in something like 25 years. And I got a pig on there at the end of last season. I got I got two pigs on my camera. And then the beginning of this season, I had four adult pigs and seven piglets running by my camera. And I mean, it was it was just unbelievable. And they seem to be so well adapted to any environment whatsoever. Um, they constantly move. I, I think it's, I'd be interested to see how it turns out for them. It, it, like you said, Robbie, if they're banking on carrying capacity, I, I hope they're banking on a high number of carrying capacity. Yeah, it's, you know, their, their reasoning here is the hunting of pigs exposes them to hunting pressure and flees them into new areas and they learn to avoid humans. That is, there's no science to show right. that. All that'll happen is those pigs will go nocturnal. That's yeah. all that'll happen. Yeah. And they're just going to stay there and do their thing and go into urban areas or whatnot. So it's utter, utter rubbish. 
Utter rubbish. Utter rubbish. We get a lot of that. That's a scientific term from the two PhDs. Utter rubbish. <laughs> the scientific term from South it. Africa is what it is. Well, Stephen, you're the man, man. We're going to – We. I know you're coming back. Uh, that was too good not to bring you back. I love your podcast. Uh, in a, in a, and I think it was uh, Sarah Logan Rowe, whatever the WWE last episode I listened to, and you know she she sort of took the words right out of my mouth when she said your podcast is such a breath of fresh air from all of the hunting podcasts saying kill the big one, Booner, two hundred inches or however. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't have those kind of animals near me. I don't have cornfields. I've got big hills and no deer. These 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 philosophical, mental, cognitive exercises, I think over the past, I, I think I started listening to you because a buddy told me about the Matt Ranella uh, thing. And and we, we our, my group has had a lot of debates about that. But I started listening to your podcast and now it's the top of my list because it makes me think more deeply about hunting than just, you know, going to the woods. I genuinely, that's what we I want. genuinely want to, like, I'm going to. I want to have you back on a on maybe a non roundup podcast so we can. I really want to dive deep on the uh, not the yawning or the semen. I do kind of, but we won't do that on this podcast. On the on the the evolution, the the naturalness of it. Um, what one of my re- I've mentioned this multiple times. There's this YouTube video where Stephen Rinella is doing a book signing, and this this anti hunter kind of comes at him. You need to just people just need to go watch it because I'll I'll butcher it. But Ranella basically says, "Look, you're the unnatural one. You're the one that is kind of defying science and biology for by not hunting, right? It's like one one thousandth of one percent of the history of humans has there ever been people that were not hunters. You know, I mean that's that's." That's how unnatural it is. I, I'd love to have that conversation in a in kind of an in-depth way. So plan on getting an invite for that. I'd be delighted. Appreciate you, Stephen. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. <laughs>